My soul can only sing of Calvary. That's a great uh, song to start off our family Bible hour with, <clears throat> because it has to do with a our study this morning is in uh, Acts again, um, chapter nine, and you can see on the board there some of the other places where Paul talks about his testimony and. I was thinking of another song that said, I was once a sinner, but I came. Pardon to receive from my Lord. It's not in your songbook. I was surprised. And it says, a new name is written down in glory. And it's mine. Yes, it's mine. And the white-robed angels sing the story. Well, Paul told the story three times of his conversion, of his coming to Christ. And I just love, the, love hearing the stories of how people came to Christ. Um, and I like chapter 15 of Luke because in Luke it talks about a lost sheep. It talks about a lost coin. It talks about a lost son. And, and every one of those ends with rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. In fact, even Jesus gives a little insight. He says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner, one lost sinner who comes to Christ than for everybody else that's sitting there. And uh, I think that should be our um, response as we look at the story of people who come to Christ. And Paul's going to tell his story. Um, last week, we left uh, Eric... Um, left us with um, the introduction to Saul as he's standing there and it says he gave his assent to the murder of a young man named Stephen. And people laid their coats or had him hold the coats while they did their thing and he was giving approval to that. So there is a, there's a Something is going to happen that's big in a conversion story for this guy. And I love stories. Um, And the other day, oh, it's been about a month ago, I was back there, and Wayne was talking to me, Wayne Gibbons, and he was telling me his story. And it was so exciting and so thrilling to see I was once a sinner. And that's what conversion is all about. There is a time before, and there's a time of tremendous conviction, and then there's a time of looking back and saying, yes, that was the real thing. And, and so I just love the story. Even this morning when, uh, when Mike was sharing, I mean, not Mike, when uh, Levi was sharing about his experience at, uh, at camp, and this boy, all of a sudden lights go on. And lights did go on for Saul. We're going to find out about that in a little bit. Well, let's open our Bibles, and we're going to turn to we're going to turn to uh, Acts twenty-two one through five. Let's see if this thing works. No, that's not what I want. There. Okay, so as you can see from the um, overhead there, PowerPoint, um, Paul's conversion. It could be Saul, it could be Paul. Eric had a hard time keeping the two together, too. So he was Saul before, and he's Paul after. But 
<clears throat> Paul, at this point, is looking back and he's sharing what had happened to him. So there's, there's, these two, there's three things. A past position of unbelief, right? Paul, I mean, yeah, Paul says in, in chapter 26, verse 9, he says, I too was convinced. He had a belief system. He was sure he was on the right track. And he was convinced of it. So that was his past position. And then there's a persuasive process that's called conviction, where God begins to do a work in your heart, and you begin to question, I don't know if I'm on the right track. Paul talks about that in one of his encounters here with, with Jesus, in his testimony, and Jesus tells him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's not a goat. That is a goad. That's something they used in the old days where they have a nail on the end of a stick and when the oxen wouldn't do his thing, he would, they would poke it. And then he would go kick back and go, whoa, that wasn't too good of an idea. And so Jesus tells Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And God uses different things in our lives to get our attention and we kick at it a lot of times. And this is a conviction process. And then there's a permanent perspective where you become a believer and notice what Paul says in several places. Romans 8 is one of them. I am convinced. I am convinced. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life. He's convinced now of the real thing. So it's a permanent perspective. He doesn't waver from it. He knows he did the right thing. So that's kind of where we're going. Paul, looking back, says, whatever gain I had, at one time I count loss. And so he says, I was wrong. And now I know it's right. So let's look at his past position of unbelief. Acts 22. So turn there with me. Acts 22, 1 through 5. So Paul tells his story in several different Places And this one happens to be where a mob of Jews have arrested him in the temple. And he stands up and he's going to speak to these people. And he's, these are the things he says. Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. It says he talked to them in Aramaic, which is interesting because in Acts it says Jesus talks to him and he heard the voice in Aramaic. So there's kind of an interesting thing there. Um, so he speaks to his People, the Jews in Aramaic, the Romans are all there trying to guard him and keep him from getting killed by these Jews. And he says this, brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicily, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. And Eric brought up this, this, this point of being zealous, zealous, zealous. Paul was zealous. He was on fire for doing his thing, thinking he was honoring God. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their fate, to their death arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters 
from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. And so he comes off with his past position of merit. We all, there are similarities in how we come to Christ as well. I am a Jew. I am an American. I'm a Christian. <laughs> you know, I don't know. The nationality was big. I'm a Jew. His nationality. He was born on the right side of the fence, of uh, the tracks, you know. Uh, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus. Brought up in Jerusalem. Two cities of identity. They were not just no, no, uh, of no importance. They were important cities. He was brought up under Gamaliel and the law. This was his Ivy League school. I mean, this was important. Gamaliel was no, not a nobody. Everybody knew about this guy. And so this gives him clout, doesn't it? A little notch on his, uh, on his resume, whatever. Under Gamaliel, and he was educated in the law. He was zealous for things, and he was zealous against things. He was an activist. He wasn't just sitting there doing nothing. He was active in what he thought was true. And now he's got endorsement, obtained letters. So this guy has a position of merit. He's got some clout. He's got some, something to be proud of. This is his past position of unbelief. So Paul referred to his pedigree as well in Philippians. Turn with me to Philippians. Eric read this last time, but I want to read it again. Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, that's pride, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, there's that word again, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And so this is his prophet that he talks about. Because whatever was to my prophet, that was not a joke. He really did consider it. Who thinks? He really did consider it a plus on his resume. Prior to conversion, we all strut our stuff, don't we? Our prophet. Jesus talked about this when he said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisee and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm sure those guys must have choked on that one. How can you get better than the Pharisee? These guys were squeaky clean. Jesus says, you clean the outside of the cup. But inside, you're stinking rotten. And so God looks at the heart, doesn't he? You might have a good show. You might have a good resume. You might have a good looks from outside. And for a man who is religious and zealous and has all the credentials, it's hard. 
This must have been another one of those who then can be saved moments. Do you remember Jesus talking to a rich man? And uh, said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because it's like a camel, you know, going through an eye of a needle. And they go, what? And so this is kind of the same idea. Him? Whoa! I mean, he's a Pharisee. He's, he knows law backwards and forwards. He's squeaky clean. And God said, no, he's filthy inside. His account of the Pharisee and the tax collector that went up to the temple to pray in Luke 18 has never gone over well with those who come from a position of merit. And in his resume, the Pharisee goes up and prays. He says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this man. I do this, I do that, I do that, I do give my tithes, I do this thing. But I'm not like that guy. He gave his resume of his do's and his don'ts. But only the one who knew he fell short of God's expectations, only the one who cried out for mercy, went away justified. And this is a hard thing for a man who comes from a position of merit. There's another thing that comes with this, and that's the position of opposition. Your past position may come with merit or it may come with demerit. It may come with morality or immorality. It may come with carefulness or carelessness. Yet one common denominator will be true of all. The opposition to Christ. And if you don't realize that, you don't know Christ. The claims of Christ when you really get it, will make you go, Ugh. The all have sinned and come short of the glory of God does not go over good with people that come from the position of merit. Christ is a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentile. And this is the side of the line that we all stand on prior to conversion. Paul says it, I too was convinced to oppose the name of Jesus. Opposing. So it comes from a position of opposition. Let's look at what it takes to get somebody to conviction. So let's look at the persuasive process, the kicking against the goads. What is the process that moves us from a past position of unbelief across the line of self-confidence and opposition to comprehension and repentance and faith? I thought of the, the word of conviction, and it has in it the idea of convict, doesn't it? I worked in the jail for many years, uh, having Bible studies and stuff like that, and it was very interesting. These guys were convicts. They were convicted by a law that says you're guilty. But you talk to them, a lot of them, maybe 80% at least, and they don't have conviction inside. And I thought, well, that's very similar to us. We all are convicted and sentenced by God and his law. Conviction of sin 
and need of Christ is a sobering work of the Spirit of God, of Christ. Isn't that true? It is. It's sobering. It's no fun. And so this persuasive process hurts. This persuasive process isn't easy. So let's look at Acts 9 now. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And we'll read. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that, he, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, interesting how the Christians call themselves the way. Isn't that what Jesus says? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any of these people belonging to the way, he might, whether they're men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. So this conviction process, there is a mystery in this process we dare not dismiss or negate. Nicodemus couldn't understand it either, did he? And Jesus didn't exactly make it easy for him. It's like the wind. It blows here. You can't see. It goes there. But you can see what it does. And sometimes we want the conversion process to be so simple. Do this, do this, do this, bing, you got it, okay, you're done. I don't think it works that way. God has to do a work in our soul. There's got to be conviction of sin. There's got a conviction of a need. Jesus said that healthy people don't look for a doctor, do they? Try take them to a doctor sometime. Man, that kick and scream. But when you know that you're a sick man, you call for a doctor. So this is a mysterious process. How does God get a hold of somebody? Maybe you've been praying for somebody yourself. And time goes on and on. Lord, we've done everything we can. You've got to do something. I like the song we sing. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin. That's the part you don't like. That's the part I don't like. Convincing men of sin. Revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. So this is a mysterious process that we be careful not to dismiss or negate. And Paul's moment of persuasion has similarities to nearly every believer as they come in, uh, in the process of conversion. These are the five things I see in this passage. The intention, the intervention, the interrogation, the instruction, and the introspection. So let's look at those. Let's look at intention. He was breathing out murderous threats. In 26, 9 through 11, he says, it was my obsession. My obsession. So Saul's intentions that morning did not have meeting Jesus on his schedule. Saul's every breath reeked of malicious intent, of murder. Notice he's not discriminating men or women. I mean, he is ugly. 
Quantity, I put many in prison to death. Frequency, many a time, I tried to force them to blaspheme the name of Christ. Lunacy, in my obsession against them. Geography, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Saul had his agenda, but praise the Lord, God had scheduled an appointment with him that he was not aware of either. So always consult your calendar before making a commitment, right? Well, let's look at intervention. I like Galatians 1.15. It says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me to reveal himself to me, it pleased God. It pleased God. What was the story about, why would God want to be with us, you know? This morning, Levi was talking about, it pleased God to draw you, to draw me to himself. So this is what happens. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. My question then is, what has God used to get your attention? I, I think of some of the crazy stories in the Bible of how God got people's attention. Luke 16, the, uh, or 15, the prodigal son. He had it all together. Whoopee! It wasn't until he got in the pigsty that all of a sudden got his attention. Remember Nicodemus, uh, not Nicodemus, Nebuchadnezzar? Isn't this the great place I've built? And Daniel says, oh man, your dream says that you're the man. You're going to be in trouble. You better repent. Oh no. He gets up and looks around. And God says, all right, you're so big. Tried eating grass for seven years like a cow. God got his attention, I think. At the end of it, he tells some wonderful things about God is, he does what he wants in the kingdom of heaven and no one says, what are you doing? It pleased God to get his attention. How ironic that Saul was out to arrest when he himself was arrested by God. Interesting how a man who thought he could see had to be made blind before he could see. And I wonder if in 2 Corinthians, the passage that you see there, that didn't come to his mind when he thinks of the light, this sudden, this light that shone. He writes this to the, to the uh, Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. You think he was thinking of that? He's, I remember the day. When the light shone through and got my attention to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And so he asked some questions. It's all the interrogation. Saul, Saul. So we're on verse 4. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What an interesting thing. So, he has your name and he knows your game, right? Saul, Saul. Remember Samuel? He heard the voice of Jesus saying, Samuel, Samuel. How many of you read the book Bruchko? Have you read that book? 
there's a story in there, and in their culture, they are given a name, and nobody knows the name except them and the person that gave it to them. And there's a story in there where this guy comes to faith in Christ, and he hears the name, his name that nobody else knows. And he says, wow, God knows my name. And so Saul, Saul, John, Peter, what's your name? He knows your name. He calls you. If he calls the stars by name, don't you think he knows yours? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's real animosity was with Jesus, and so is ours. And so he asked the question, who are you, Lord? Is that a strange question? What would you think if you were, poof, you know, and you're on the ground and and you hear this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Does he go, oh, who could that be? There was another guy named Jacob who had a similar experience. He was wrestling with God. And God says, what's your name? Not that God didn't know his name. It's just that he wanted to hear him say it. My name is Jacob. Cheat. Rascal. Deceiver. And they wrestle some more, and then Jacob says, and what's your name? And the angel of God says, why do you ask my name? Don't you know? Are you that thick? He never tells him who wrestles with him. And I think that's sometimes our case, isn't it? God's wrestling with you. You're wrestling with him. And he identifies who you are. And we come back with, I don't know, is that really you? You better believe it's me. Last week we were, after the message Eric had, we sang the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that, in that song it says this, Doth ask who that may be. And I think that's what Paul is doing. And the answer is, I am Jesus. Christ Jesus, it is he. Jesus. You shall give him the name what? Jesus. For he shall do what? Save his people from their sins. I'm the one you're persecuting, the one whose name above every name, the one who saves his people from their sin, whose name is the only one under heaven, given among men, where we can be saved. I am Jesus. Well, let's look at the instruction. So he's instructed what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand to Damascus. Well, first it says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I think sometimes we poo-poo this idea of what we must do. Instinctively in coming to Christ... We all know there are things that we're going to have to do that are different than we did before, right? That's what repentance is all about. It's turning around. It's an about face. I was once a sinner, but by grace, by faith, I came to him and changed. And so there's this idea. 
And God gives him instructions what to do. It'll be told you what to do. And numerous times in Acts, when confronted with the gospel of Jesus, people ask the same question, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? There is an imperative, urgent nature to the command, to this command or question. What must I do? There's no other name under heaven by which you, what's the word? Must be saved. Nicodemus, you must be born again. What must I do? And it'll be told you what you must do. So it's urgent, it's imperative. The answer always begins with our belief in the person and work of Jesus. Obedience and enabling will only flow from that resolution. In an era when we demand a full explanation of everything, I will be told, it will be told you, must seem insulting. Don't we like to hold the cards? Yeah, give me a clue. No, it'll be told you, you just do this. Do this. Go rub the mud off your eyes in the pool of Siloam. That's dumb. Why don't you just do this? No, you must do this. But he knows when you are ready and challenge you to trust and obey him. Let's look at the introspection. Three days. So they led him by the hand at Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And in other passages in Acts 22, he says he didn't, he didn't have anything to eat, he didn't drink, nothing. Three days, blind, no food, no water, and I'm sure resonating in his head was these words, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Three days. Why three days? Come on, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved. You're in. Good to go. I think we we short sell people sometimes. This was not a wasted time, a time of reflection on all the goads God had used to get his attention. Don't you think that guy was thinking? I mean, I gave my life for this. And now it was wrong. There was some processing going on in his head. Goads that he could not dismiss. Goads that challenged his pride and rebellion and told him he was wrong. Too often we want to rush over the process of introspection and repentance. The three days of reflection and remorse as though it wasn't relevant in one's conversion. This isn't a bump in the road for Saul. This is a different road. And it's going to take some time to think that through. And God's going to put a, iron some things out in his head. This is a come let us reason together moment. That though your sins be like scarlet. You've got to come to that point. Then there's the other point. They shall be as white as snow. So this introspection is important. So let's go and take a look at the permanent perspective of him becoming a believer. Three repeated accounts with no deductions. 
don't know if I spelt that right. Any spellers here? Have you been interested in the deductions lately? Oh, my goodness. They, on the, oh, we got this from this guy. and Oh, and they deducted this and they deducted that. And What was the full thing? You know, and There's no deductions in Paul's accounts on these three accounts of his conversion. And there's no retractions either. A compelling testimony that he never got over or undermined. Neither did he feel the need to embellish it or jazz it up. And these are some of the things he says later on in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. You sinners. <laughs> no, he says, and I am the worst. Later on, he says this, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed unto him against that day. Does it sound like a guy who's, uh, I don't know if I did the right thing. (laughs) No. He knows what he did. He knows the promises of God. And he knows the Lord himself. And I love Isaiah 43 Verses 10 through 11. It says this. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen. Did Paul get chosen? He certainly did. The one who separated me all the way from my mother's womb. Who way back when, from all eternity, he knew who I was and he was calling me. He was going to use me. My servant whom I have chosen. What did he choose him for? The first thing he chooses any of us for is this, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Who are you, Lord? I am he. Before Abraham was, I am. Before me, there was no God formed, nor there shall be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. What's his name? Jesus. He shall save. So what a witness Paul was. What a servant. What an insatiable appetite. He says in Philippians, what was profit to me is now lost. And everything is for one purpose. I want to know him. Where do you stand today? Are you still in a past position Of rebellion, of pride, of opposition? Are you struggling in the persuasive process? Don't kick anymore against the goads. Fall in love with him. Fall on your face before him. Are you standing in a permanent perspective? I hope that's the case. And I hope you don't ever get over, and I hope I never get over Those that day when we came to Christ, when he reached out and grabbed us and revealed himself to us. It's all about being a sinner. It's all about the Christ who came to die for sinners. The one who so loved the world that we heard about this morning. And the world is dying. In their pride, in their foolishness, in their carelessness, 
We too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. And we come to Christ. And he opens our eyes. I hope you do that if you haven't done it already. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant, Paul. Oh God, you haven't changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You still love people. You still reach out and grab people and say, you're my servant. I want you to know me. So wake us up. Help us to rejoice in our position if it's one that has come to Christ. If it's not, Lord, would you continue using the goads? Whatever they may be. To bring us to faith in Christ. To bring us to eternal life. To bring us to life that will never perish. To bring us to a crown of righteousness that will never be taken away. So we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.